so I took a year between college and seminary um, to spend time at my home church doing an internship, learning ministry, uh, learning from mentors, uh, beginning the process of getting into ministry. So I took a year off. And right before that year was over, right before I moved to Chicago to begin to attend seminary, um, the lead pastor of my home church, he took me aside, took me out to lunch uh, one day, and he told me, uh, in essence, he told me this. He said, Scott, I think you should consider going straight into uh, preaching and leading a church um, instead of starting out in youth ministry. He knew <laughs> that I had already been talking, uh, actually for, for a couple years at this point, uh, already talking about going into youth ministry, and I was gung-ho about this is what God's called me to do. We've got to reach the next generation. They're getting eaten alive because we're sending them out into the world unprepared. We've got to train our young people. We've got to show them what it means to love Jesus. Um, youth ministry is where it's at, and I was certain that I knew what I was supposed to do, uh, and it was youth ministry. Well... <laughs> you can tell where this is headed. Four years of seminary and 12 years of youth ministry later, I finally admitted to myself at least uh, that he had been right all along. Um, I missed it. I missed it. I didn't listen. I was sure I knew better than a then 50-year-old pastor with 30 years of ministry experience who was not just speaking for himself, turns out, I found out later, he was speaking on behalf of dozens of people around him with whom he had chatted and talked and watched. And I knew better than he did, duh. Now, don't get me wrong, parenthetically, by the way, I'm grateful for what I learned in those years in youth ministry. They were rich, wonderful years. The Lord used that nonetheless. That's how God works, right? Like he doesn't waste any of our faithfulness, uh, even if it's in some different directions. But I'm glad for those years and uh, for what they produced in me and in others who are a part of that. But I wish I had understood uh, better what God had, had for me based on who I was and how he had gifted me. And here's the rub. Here's the rub. The reasons are more complicated than this, uh, but looking back, I think one of the main reasons I missed it is that I was avoiding the responsibility for which God had trained and gifted me because of a pride that kept me from listening to others and from trusting that God maybe had different plans than I did. Friends, how do we make sure? How do we make sure that our sinful pride doesn't tempt us to another calling? And listen, this isn't just about big picture callings in your life, like what am I supposed to do? In my this is about the little callings that we have from day to day where your call is to do the next right thing in that relationship where you know what you're, not, you're supposed to say. You know in that work situation what you're not supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do in those kinds of ways. It's all those little callings from day to day as well. So how do we, how do we make sure that our sinful pride doesn't tempt us to other callings in our lives? We gain a vision for who we are and why we were created and who God is and why he created us and why he deserves all glory that comes from this book. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2 are the answer for us today. They provide for us a helpful big picture framework as it relates to our calling. And I'm excited about today because we begin Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to absolutely dissect these two verses. I'm excited. So let's read Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. 
uh, and then jump in together to learn about our calling in Christ. They say this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some introductory stuff here before we jump in. The New Testament book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus while he was in prison. So it's what we call a prison letter or a prison epistle, you'll sometimes hear. The words epistle and letter are roughly synonymous. So along with three other books that he wrote, which is Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, Ephesians was written by Paul while he was in prison. He says three different times in Ephesians, he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ, a prisoner of the Lord, an ambassador in chains. You'll see that throughout in your reading from day to day. This helps us, this idea that he's writing from prison, it helps us understand that Paul wasn't just writing from some ivory tower out, out there somewhere, but he was actually living the life that he was encouraging them to live, and his challenge to them was not just empty, vain words. This was a dude who was in the trenches of saying yes to what God had called him to do, day in and day out. So these two verses at the beginning of Ephesians here, they're what we call the salutation. The salutation, if you remember back to like middle school English maybe, uh, the salutation is the beginning greeting of a letter. In a a Greco-Roman letter writing form, Greco-Romans, just putting the two words Greek and Roman together because we're in a time where those two cultures sort of overlap some. Okay, anyway. So in Greco-Roman letter writing form, it generally included three elements, the sender, the recipients, and a greeting. This is important here to understand for what we're going to unpack here. It included the sender, the recipients, and the greeting. Now notice here in verses one and two, that every one of those three elements, the sender, the recipients, and the greeting, they're spoken of in relation to Jesus. They're sort of defined by their relation to Jesus. It's like Paul at the very beginning of the letter here is weaving into even the salutation, this idea that Jesus is the foundation on which we must build our lives and our churches. I mean, look at what it says. The sender, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, The recipients, the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. The greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something we'll see throughout the entire letter of Ephesians, just like our our series title says. This is about a church that's built on Christ. This is about your life, reading through Ephesians, hearing God speak to you as he tells you who you are and what you're called to. You becoming someone who is built on Christ and not other callings in your life. So look again at the first phrase. First phrase in verse one, it says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul obviously identifies himself at the beginning as the author, and notice that he calls himself uh, an apostle. He calls attention to his office as apostle. So on the one hand, uh, this is a way for Paul just at the beginning to establish that he writes to the church at Ephesus with the authority of an apostle who had seen uh, and experienced Jesus personally, uh, who was sent to teach them doctrine, who was called to lead them. Also, though, important to understand here is that he was saying that was his calling. Like, this isn't just an identifier 
of, of who is sending this letter. This is also an identifier, this is a way of Paul of saying, listen, this is who I am. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is who I am, this is what I'm called to be. And where does he get this authority? How does he have this authority to teach and lead the church, uh, especially from afar? He hadn't yet really spent a lot of time with this church, so from afar he's writing this letter as an apostle. What gives him the authority? Keep reading, it says this. By the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, how? By the will of God. This wasn't Paul's doing, it was God's doing. God was the one who placed Paul in this position as he saw it. (laughs) He's the one who placed him in this position and is ultimately the source of anything he says or writes to them. He's well aware that anything he says that is useful or helpful in this letter to them for building up the body, uh, for being people in a church built on Christ, it holds its authority because of God's resolve to Paul. He uses the same phrase by the will of God four times in the first 11 verses, not just as a way to say that that God's the real power behind Paul's authority and his calling as apostle, but also to say that God is the operative power and purpose behind salvation of all people. All who know him are people who know him because God's initiative. Now, this is important for Paul to establish up front here at the beginning of the letter. Because we're talking here about a dude who was a hardcore Pharisee, part of the reigning Jewish power structure at the time. This is a guy who previously had been persecuting the people to whom he is now writing. In Acts chapter 8, it tells us that Paul stood there approving of the stoning of Stephen, one of the the first uh, followers of Jesus. He had been preaching to the Jews, and it says that Paul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. And that same dude now is writing to these Christians who believed in Jesus. Think about this. This is one of the main men God used to to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, to establish and lead and be an authoritative doctrinal voice to the first churches. So Paul knows very well the source of his authority as an apostle. Only God can do that kind of thing. It's by the will of God. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now this is cool. Look at this next phrase here, verse 1b, the second half of verse 1. Paul says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This just isn't, isn't just a way to say they're the recipients. It's a way to continue to to feed them this idea that he's headed toward that they need to be people who are built on Jesus. Long story short, Ephesus at the time is the top five largest city in the world. It was well known uh, in a couple ways, both as a center of, of pagan sexual practices and idolatrous cults and emerging worship of uh, the emperor at the time, But also it was known for its uh, Greco-Roman education and learning and philosophy. So suffice it to say that in that setting, the Christians in Ephesus were a a pretty small minority. Pretty unimportant, very small minority of people who were trying to say in this huge city, affected by (laughs) all those things we just mentioned in a culture like that saying, Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine the oppression that they felt, the pressure 
they felt. I know, I know those of you who take on Jesus' mission understand that. These people had that in spades. So they needed encouragement. He calls them saints and faithful. And to call them saints, <laughs> well, that felt a little weird because to call them saints was to say, like the Old Testament people of God, that they were set apart or holy for God's purposes, just like God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, God speaking to the people, says, for you are a people holy, set apart to the Lord for his purposes. You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. So Paul calls them saints in Ephesus, which would sound like a total oxymoron. <laughs> like they were two ideas that shouldn't go together. You see, the word saints, as a people set apart or holy for God's purposes, was a word that should have been reserved only in their thinking, at least, for the Old Testament people of God, for the Jews. And Paul is referring here to Gentiles, non-Jews, in, of all places, Ephesus. He's referring to them as saints. He's saying, you now have a, a calling, a new calling, as even Gentiles who are set apart for God's purposes. From his perspective, it made total sense to call them saints because as he also says, next phrase, they were faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. A couple things here. The word faithful here doesn't really refer to them being particularly trustworthy or, or reliable. More like, more like it's a noun, not an adjective. The word faithful here is functioning here not as an adjective to describe them being particularly trustworthy and reliable and they had good faith they manufactured in Jesus. It's describing it more like a noun to speak of their spiritual status as those who have faith in Christ. This phrase, in Christ Jesus, here in this verse, or, or all the variations that Paul uses, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, all these variations on this theme for Paul are shorthand to describe everything that we have in salvation. So in Christ, we have everything, he says. In this case, we have a new status of being filled with faith in what he did for us. So to put all this together here, Notice what Paul is doing here in verse 1b, in the second half of verse 1. He puts these two phrases together, and he puts them in parallel, Ephesus, Christ Jesus, saints, faithful. Saints in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, as a way to say, listen, <laughs> I know you're in a place of great spiritual opposition you are in a tiny, tiny minority, but you are called, nonetheless, to be saints in Ephesus, set apart and holy for God's purposes in this earthly place. So don't forget that your status as faithful has a, has a heavenly spiritual source. You may live here in Ephesus, but your faith is in the heavenlies. That's a theme Paul will unpack a little later on. 
In other words, your newfound life in Jesus and your calling to live is set apart and holy for God's purposes. It's not tied to your worldly circumstances. Your new union with Christ means you are called as saints and faithful, no differently than I am called as apostle to witness to who God is and what he has done. Our calling is the same, to be messengers and ambassadors and proclaimers of this new life that we have in Christ. And I know that it's going to be hard in Ephesus. I know it's going to be hard in Ephesus, which is why Paul offers these words of hope and encouragement as his greeting. Look at this, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his greeting here. And there's some cool stuff going on here I want you to notice. In saying grace and peace, Paul has joined together um, a tweak on a typical Gentile greeting. Gentile just means non-Jew. He's joined together a tweak on a typical non-Jewish greeting with a well-known Jewish greeting to produce a new Christian greeting. (laughs) Slightly confusing. We'll go through it again. Let me tell you what I mean. There was a standard Gentile greeting using the word karein, C-H-A-I-R-E-I-N for the note takers. Um, Karein means hello, basically. It means rejoice in the day. I hope you get wealth and prosperity. Hello. Be happy in today, yay. Um, But Paul gives it a Christian tweak, and he changes it to charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, which means grace. So karein, um, which meant hello in the Gentile, non-Christian, non-Jewish world, karein becomes charis. Hello (laughs) becomes grace. To emphasize God's provision of what we can't do for ourselves. It's a way of saying, well wishes for a good day doesn't make sense in a world where we have the unconditional love of God in Jesus. We track it? Because that's profound, y'all. Who needs hello when you've got grace? Who needs well wishes for your day? I hope you get material prosperity and the world gives you what the world can give you and the circumstances make you happy. Who cares about that when you have grace in Jesus, Paul is saying. That's just the beginning of it. It gets cooler. He also takes the word peace here to call attention to this Old Testament idea of shalom. Uh, Shalom is the way that especially the Old Testament, would speak of no longer, uh, it meant a number of things, but uh, one of the main things it, it meant is it, it was a way to speak of no longer being in an adversarial kind of relationship with God. But I'm doing what he's called me to do, and I'm flourishing because of it, because I'm working with the way he's made the world. <laughs> That's shalom. In the Christian sense, Jesus gives us that peace with God. So he's putting together a Gentile and a Jewish greeting to produce a new Christian greeting. It's like he's saying, I do not greet you in the normal stuff that makes the world work, but in the name of the one who provides grace and peace that can provide what you cannot for yourself. We are grace and peace people, he's saying. So when Paul says here, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He means that God provides for us what we can't for ourselves, and that is what is going to sustain our calling in our Ephesus. To be saints in Greenville and in Afton who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you will be what sustains you in the day-to-day. And friends, these weren't just empty words for Paul. 
These aren't empty words. Not only was he in prison for, for living out his part of this calling to be set apart and holy for God's purposes, but he knew what he had been and that God provided for him what he couldn't for himself. He was palpably aware of that. Listen to his own words about the effect of grace in his life. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10 say this, For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, look at this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I love that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Friends, grace has to be viewed not as something we grab hold of in ourselves from ourselves as a deserved or a gained thing. It has to be viewed in light of what it really actually does for us. You see, friends, grace isn't grace when it's viewed through your misperception of yourself as awesome enough to deserve it. Grace is only grace when it's viewed as the love God set upon you, as the love God set upon you when you were not deserving because he is awesome. It is this ongoing understanding of the grace and peace of God that can sustain us in our calling to be saints in Greenville and saints in Afton who have faith that is placed in the object of Jesus Christ who died on our behalf. You will not sustain it without God's grace and peace. Grace and peace from God are what sustain us in our calling to be saints, set apart ones, holy for God's purposes, who are full of faith in what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Friends, this is important for us to remember as the ongoing source of our calling <laughs> because we are all of us, we're gonna walk out these doors and we're gonna be tempted to all the lesser callings in our lives. The opposition that is all around us, perhaps in our own family, in our own homes, the opposition that is all around us can tempt us to seek lesser callings in our lives. And if you are not careful, if you are not intentional about naming and pursuing the call of God on your life to be a saint set apart, holy for his purposes, you will begin to functionally let other callings control you. Friends, drifters don't drift upward. You will end up building your life on things other than Jesus if you are not careful and intentional about naming his call for you to be a saint set apart for his glory and for his purposes. You know what I mean by this drifting thing. You've all experienced forms of it. The healthy relationships you knew were good for you and the accountability that you knew was good for you that you cut off because of career advancement, temporary physical pleasures. The people you've neglected, 
because in the short term you were after temporary emotional warm fuzzies? The person you should have never said yes to in the first place. And now you're living with the consequences. There are other callings that tempt us to build our lives on flimsy foundations. They're all around us. Which is why we have to be careful, intentional. We have to heed Paul's words in Ephesians 1 very seriously. Because when you when you take seriously the calling to be set apart for God's purposes, you will strategize. You will build around that foundation of being set apart and holy for his purposes. So about five years ago, um, I had the opportunity to sit at a table during a time of prayer, uh, and wouldn't you know it, in a room of hundreds of people, the two of us that got together were me and my lead pastor <laughs> from my home church. And uh, I, knew, I knew as we were approaching, I thought, holy cow, the chances of this, me sitting with this man, I knew I was in for it. I bawled like a baby during our prayer time <laughs> for a couple reasons, one of which was the feeling of relief I experienced when I told him, listen, you were right. I was wrong. I should have listened. Friends, don't let your pride keep you caught in the net of lesser callings. In the person of Jesus, God has provided grace and peace to sustain you for a greater purpose. I believe that's why you're sitting in these seats today. To hear God's call on your life if you need it. For those of you who already follow him, to hear God's call in your life where you need it. In the person of Jesus, God has provided grace and peace to sustain you for a greater purpose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for seeking lesser callings in our lives. We admit that uh, we have, in various ways, refused your vision for our lives. Sinful pride has kept us from experiencing the fullness of your grace and your peace. And we pray, Lord, that you would, yet again, accept our soft hearts that can hear from you. so that you can speak to us and tell us where and how you're calling us to follow you. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to shape us uh, individually, in our marriages, in our families, corporately as a body of believers. Shape and form us, Lord, um, so that we would say yes to your calling to, to live lives that are set apart and holy for your purposes. That we would be people whose faith and trust are in your son Jesus and what he's done for us. So that we would build upon a foundation that's lasting and sure. Father, thank you for the initiative you've taken to show us that. We ask this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.